A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to a History of Europe, Key Battles podcast. I have something a little bit different for you today. Instead of the narrative, I had a chance a few days ago to speak to a historian and author by the name of Jacob F. Field. I was interested in speaking to Jacob because of his most recent project, which bears some resemblances to this podcast, where he attempts to summarise the grand sweep of European history in a digestible format. So without further ado, I'll play the interview for you and hope you enjoy. And as always, it's great to hear any feedback. So today I have the pleasure to invite to the podcast author and historian Jacob F. Field. Jacob was born in London, studied modern history at the University of Oxford, which is just down the road from where I live in my small village of Ensham. He uh, did a postgraduate study at Newcastle University, went on to teach in New Zealand and is now back in the UK. He's written a number of books, including One Bloody Thing After Another, The World's Gruesome History, a book about historical speeches called We Shall Fight on the Beaches, and most recently, a book called The History of Europe in Bite-Sized Chunks. So, Jacob, welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. It's great to have you. So, perhaps I thought the, the first thing I was wanting to ask is, what got you um, first interested in the history? Well, it was my, my dad, really. My dad's a really passionate historian uh, who's very interested in the Elizabethan period. And one of my earliest memories is him taking me to St Paul's Cathedral, and then to the monument and having a look around there. And then that afternoon, we went to see some historical reenactors from the English Civil War period. So from then, really, I was about eight or nine. That really got me interested in the sort of the early modern period in the 17th century. Um, so it's really through him that I, I sort of became fascinated with, with, with history. So it was thanks to him. Um, what are the uh, areas in history that fascinate you the most? Well, I would say I really, the first thing which really fascinated me was Queen Elizabeth I in the Elizabethan era. Um, you know, so it was fascinating to have such a strong female leader uh, in the country and also that ties into things like the Armada. And then mo moving forward, I was always really fascinated with um, the British civil wars and, and how it got to be that a monarch was executed and this country had its brief Republican experiment. Um, but beyond sort of British history, I, was, I became also fascinated with uh, Byzantium and also the Crusades. But most of my academic studies really been in more British history. 
So I believe the first book you wrote was called One Bloody Thing After Another. Would you like to say a few words about that? Yeah, sure. That that was a, that was a book that was uh, very interesting to research. I won't say fun to research because it is rather gruesome. But that was looking at kind of all the most horrible events in history, all the torture, beheadings and bloodshed from uh, ancient times. And we sort of stopped in the 19th century because I think the editors and I decided if you go any further than that, I think it starts to get a little too close to home. But but that book was certainly um, very interesting to look at and, and some uh, some very interesting research. And I think uh, certainly, you know, people of the past uh, could be just as bloody and, and uh, horrible as people in the present day. So we don't have any monopoly on cruelty, unfortunately. Uh, ab absolutely. I'm, I'm sure you saw a number of recurring themes uh, going through history. Yes, very, very much so. I think um, this tendency to persecute groups who, who you can somehow paint as uh, the other or, or people whose views are sort of unacceptable, particularly when you get to Europe's uh, confessional era, you know, this, this battle between uh, the Catholic world and the Protestant world um, that, that seemed to make sort of more, much more palatable to, to, to punish people in these very cruel and horrible ways. Yeah, kind of the importance of identity and and tribalism and how people get into groups. Mm, very much so, yeah. No, I, I think that it was, um, you know, if you can paint someone or group of people as someone who's outside a group and doesn't belong, uh, that means sort of a very wide range of behaviour can become excusable and, and even praised. And so the, your most recently, recent book, just come out a few days ago, is A History of Europe Bite-Sized Chunks. So in this particular book, you've decided not to go into too much detail into any one subject. What you've decided to do is kind of go on a kind of quick tour on the, the grand sweep of history and kind of just under 200 pages. Uh, can, can you um, uh, tell me kind of why you decided to go for that particular format? Yeah, well, what I wanted to do was really tell only the most interesting, significant parts of history, um, starting from... The beginning we chose was kind of the Minoan civilization, ancient Greece, and wanted to go right up to the present day. And we wanted to look at sort of some recurring themes in European history and important moments in particular countries. And one thing I was really passionate about doing in the book is including uh, Central Europe and Eastern Europe, and not just focusing on, on Western Europe, and trying to look broadly at the continent, as well as the occasions when the continent begins to reach out uh, during its sort of imperial phase. So I wanted to keep the book as broad as possible, uh, whilst you know uh, tackling sort of significant moments. Um, so that's why we had to do it, and, and you know publishing ne publishing necessitated that we had to do it in under two hundred pages. So that was a really big challenge, um, choosing exactly what to put in and, and what sadly we had to leave out. Yeah, I think there were some similarities with 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 my particular project with the podcast of given the. The grand sweep of history and sometimes I give a, an overall and then focus on particular events and it's sometimes the most difficult to actually summarize you know um, a, a large topic in just a few words well it's more difficult to do that than to go into some of the details of events. Yes I mean some topics are so hugely complicated take for example you know the 30 years war you could write a whole book on the causes of the 30 years war um, and actually, as you say, it's much harder to write a power graph on the causes of the Thirty Years' War because you have to include so much uh, in there. And, and, you know, the way I sort of 
managed to tackle it was was to say to myself, look, um, you're not going to be able to put everything in, but just use your sort of skill as a writer and historian to try and include what you think the reader needs and and, and what is the most important. And that's what hopefully um, we accomplished with this book. Yeah, I think there's very much a focus in general history writing of, at least for the um, general public, of focusing on particular issues generally about Western Western Europe and France and Germany and Britain, but as you mentioned, some other areas kind of less well known, and there are some of the areas which I'm kind of trying to reach out to as well. And there were some particular areas which you perhaps felt you had to miss out on, which kind of just missed out. Well, I would have really loved to put in more about um, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which, you know, for, at times in the 16th century, depending on how you tackle it, was one of the biggest states in Europe and constitutionally really fascinating how in Poland you have this elective king uh, and the sort of, you know, various European crown heads going over to Poland to become the king, including... Um, someone who your listeners might come across when you, you carry on with the French wars of religion. Uh, and then suddenly over the 18th and 19th century, Poland just gets, you know, carved apart and wiped from the map. So I think Poland is this really fascinating country, um, which I was able to fit in some of the story of Poland, but and unfortunately just couldn't quite fit in everything there. So I think that that, that part of Europe is certainly fascinating to me. Yeah, I can imagine the, the Polish... Lithuanian Commonwealth is something which is very difficult to, to summarise, to get across in, in in a few words. Yes, it, it's really hard, I mean, because you've got a kind of nation, it's not a nation state as we think of nations, um, and it was a very sort of unique alliance, and also it comes from things like the, um, we don't really think about the Baltic states as being of huge economic importance, but in the 16th, 15th century, it was one of the major thoroughfares of Europe, the, um, the Baltic, and you have things like the Hanseatic League. Um, so that's why I wanted to include as much Central and Eastern European history as possible, so we could, uh, in the book, really think about the grand sweep of, of the continent and all of its corners. And how it fits into the general history of the Northern Crusades before and then, uh, and then Prussia later. Yes, exactly. I mean, I think, you know, the Northern Crusades are are something which should, you know, really be studied more, if only because if you compare them to the Crusades in the Holy Land in the long term, they were, you know, much, much more successful in installing, well, permanent Christian kings in, in the region, uh, whereas the Holy Land, the Crusader states, they only last a matter of centuries. Absolutely. Um, another thing I was uh, curious about is your thoughts on history writing for the for the public today? Have you kind of seen changes over the years? And um, can, can you see in which direction it's going? Yeah, well, you know, I, I think, um, I think popular history is, is almost, you know, as 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 good as it's ever been, really, I think there's such uh, a public will to learn about topics and people I think are you know, quite willing to read a book about a topic they don't know too much about if it's well written um, and has the same sort of academic rigour um, as a book written for the specialist, but, you know, something which is slightly more accessible. Um, you know, so I think popular history is in a very good state. Uh, and then alongside that, you, you, you've got some really excellent documentaries being made and and some, you know, I think really good 
historical films being made, things like The Favourite, which I thought was, you know, a really terrific depiction of 18th and 18th century England. And of course, one of the more recent innovations is the is the podcast. Mm-hmm. There are tens, I don't know how many history podcasts out there now. I wonder if you you listen to any of them. Yeah, I do. I mean, um, I was going through through my my podcast app, and, and there's one or two, and um, um, I tend to listen more to ones which are outside of my particular expertise. Um, so, so I listen to a lot of American history podcasts. So one of my favourites is called "You Must Remember This." Um, which is about the golden age of Hollywood, and it's presented by a uh, historian called Karina Longworth. And another one I really love is called The Dollop, which is uh, actually presented by a comedian called Dave Anthony. Um, but he, his um, his sources he write he write quotes really good primary sources, and, it, and it's you know terrifically funny as, as well as telling a lot of stories about American history that I, I, I wasn't aware of before listening to them. And then, of course, there's the History Extra podcast um, produced by the BBC, which is also really good. Yeah, I haven't heard of the, the first two, to be honest. So, uh, yeah, maybe I'll have to go and check them out. Yes, do. No, no particularly um, uh, the dollop, I think, is really good. And, you know, there's some uh, really terrific episodes there about things, um, you know, such as uh, Andrew Jackson's presidential campaign and, and that, you know, He's a sort of historian, a historical figure who's become important again, or you know, more modern history, um, like like the life of Senator John McCain and the various controversies around him. So, you know, it, it's certainly interesting if you like American history. Cool fact: a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Excellent. So I thought it'd be um, interesting to focus on the era which which I've reached in, in my podcast. So I began with the ancient Greeks and... Um, as you mentioned, got up to the French Wars of Religion um, at the moment, so the whole time of the, the, the Reformation. So I think it's a particularly interesting time, as you mentioned before, the Elizabethan age. I mean, there's big step changes happening from the 1400s to 1500s, then 1600s again. A lot, a lot of changes going on in the continent. Um, I think the Elizabethan age, the, the Tudor age in general, has really captured the public imagination I just wondered um, what you thought it was about that time, which um, which fascinates us. Well, I, I really think um, people, when they look at history, first become attracted to the personalities. And you have there, you know, in Henry VIII and Elizabeth I, two hugely strong personalities who are endlessly fascinating. And they're people about whom it's impossible not to have an opinion. Uh, you can either love them or loathe them, but you'll think you have a strong feeling about them one way or the other. And then the more you deep in, dig into this, uh, the Tudor period, all the other figures around them are all you know, really fascinating. Henry VII is sort of like this Machiavellian 
Machiavellian figure. You know, Edward VI is the sort of doomed, lost Protestant prince who, who could have been, um, you know, one of Europe's great leaders had he not died prematurely. You know, you've got Bloody Mary, and then you've got people like uh, Cranmer and, and Thomas Cromwell, uh, Walsingham, John Dee. So there's all these amazingly interesting, influential people floating around, not, not to mention the likes of Walter Raleigh and Francis Drake. Um, so I think that's what really interests people, because as you say, it's kind of like a, a tipping point uh, in history where England goes from being this kind of minor island on the corner of Europe to going on the road to being a great imperial power eventually. Absolutely. A, a whole host of fascinating characters and a lot of books written about the, the period, some of them really interesting and also uh, the t being on TV and different films. Yeah, there's, there's, there's something about that time. Yeah, no, I think so. And I think also you begin to see um, more realistic portraiture uh, moving on from the medieval period when, when, you know, people aren't depicted in quite the same realistic way. So you actually have more of a con conceiving head what these people look like. Uh, and we have from the Eliz Elizabethan period so many more documents surviving and, and so you get a real idea of the voice of, of, of people so I think that's why um, you can really capture the public imagination because there's so much there for the historian to kind of bring out about the period in history. Yeah and you, you still got the uh, the physical reminders obviously around the around England you've got various Tudor buildings still mm. quite well preserved. Which, which yeah very, very much so. Yeah is there something about that particular time do you think deserves to be more well known? Well, I certainly think that Henry VII deserves to be more well known. I think he was one of the most effective kings or monarchs this country's ever really had. You know, he he comes to power at a time, you know, when Britain's been at civil war for for for, for many decades. Um, he rises from fairly obscure origins, spending most of his early years in exile. Uh, and by, by the time he dies, you know, he's solidly on the throne. He's got a successor in place. Uh, and, 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 you know, what, what's more, he, he leaves the treasury relatively full. So he was also financially extremely sound. Uh, so I think Henry VII is, in my eyes, someone who I rate far higher as, as a king, as a ruler, than his son, Henry VIII. And allied to that also, I think you've got um, Prince Arthur, you know, the Henry VIII's older brother. And I think he's a very interesting um, character. And I, you know, I try not to dwell too much on counterfactual history, you know, what might have been. But it certainly is an interesting thought experiment to think what would have happened had Prince Arthur survived to become king with Catherine of Aragon as his wife. Would you have had a long-term Anglo-Spanish alliance, would there even have been a reformation in England? So on these little quirks of history, you can have huge shifts in, in, in the history of the continent. Absolutely, yeah. I often think that uh, we just assume it, the history would have always followed the way it has done, mm. but, uh, you know, one death or birth here and there or one marriage either way kind of, you know, really does set a different course. Obviously, with, with battles, of, of course, what the podcast is about, you know, several battles, if they'd gone another way, then things could have all been different. Yes, I mean, you know, it wasn't um, exactly, it wasn't destined that Henry VII was going to be able to defeat Richard III. 
you know, Richard III could very easily have won that battle and stayed on the throne. And then, you know, who knows what would have happened. Yeah. So, yeah, this is the time of the Reformation, which is uh, yeah, a fascinating era. But I think one area which is less well known, at least in in England, is the uh, French Wars of Religion, uh, which, which I've been covering, of course, just recently. The St. Bartholomew's Day Massacre kind of stands out as the one event, but otherwise kind of not so much known. So what, what's, what's your take about why that might be? Um, and what do you think is, is interesting about, about that conflict? Yeah, well, I, I think in general, I think French history is not really very studied in this country. Um, you know, if you look at the national curriculum, you know, we think about the French. They, they come over from Normandy in 1066. And then you don't really hear much from them in, until they're being invaded in 1914 and 1939. I mean, most people don't even study the French Revolution in schools. Um, which I think is a great loss. And the French wars of religion, I think, are this archetypal confessional conflict which become increasingly common uh, as a result of the Reformation. Um, so I think it's a shame it's not further studied. And I think it's very significant because, in many senses, it delays France's rise as a great power uh, by perhaps at least half a century or so, maybe a whole century, because you have depending on how you dictate the start and end of the conflict, at least 50 years of, of semi-constant warfare, which leads to the deaths of millions. Um, so I think it's really fascinating. I think another reason we don't really look at it is because England's involvement in it was fairly peripheral. Occasionally you get Elizabeth sending the odd exhibition, expedition rather, to, to France, but I don't think her heart was really in it. I think she was too savvy for... Britain to get really caught up in the French laws of religion. I think she was always very cautious in everything she did. Yeah, and, and the same with her approach to the, the Dutch revolt. Um, and I think there she, she probably, again, did, didn't want to commit too much uh, English, um, too much of England's resources to, to fighting potentially a very costly war on the continent. So... When, when I've finished with the French Wars of Religion, the, the next topic, topic I'm going to go into is the uh, Spanish Armada, which, when I looked into it, was um, kind of fascinating areas which are, are less well-known, such that there wasn't just one Spanish Armada, there were four or five. Uh, the whole Dutch revolt was so closely um, interlinked with, with the Armada as well. Um, so you, you say you have a, a special interest in, in, that, in that time, of Elizabeth and the Armada. Um, what, what's your uh, idea of the importance of that particular time? Well, I, I think certainly with with the Armada, I mean, this is a period in history, but by then it's, it's pretty clear Elizabeth is never going to get married. Um, she doesn't have an heir, and it's still not fully clear that, you know, James VI is going to come down and then replace uh, her as the monarch when she dies. So, you know, things are sort of a little bit in flux. And also... Um, had the Spanish been able to ferry across the Duke of Parma's army from the Low Countries, it, you know, you, you've got one of some of the best infantry in in, in Europe uh, fighting against possibly, you know, a small and underfunded local militia in England. So, you know, the fact I think the Spanish Armada is important because of what it prevents. 
uh, and and you know you could have had a very unsuccessful war for, for Elizabeth. And then I think Elizabeth and her regime's genius was turning this into a propaganda victory. Uh, and I think the imagery of, of, of Elizabeth, you know, um, addressing the mass troops at Tilbury in Essex uh, and this notion that it was a Protestant wind which blew away the Spanish Armada, I think it becomes this huge propaganda victory um, in, in the First Armada. And then, you know, almost it seems we, we forget about the other Armadas because, again, they just weren't particularly successful. But it's uh, highly symbolic and you know, still one of the most famous events in English history today. Yeah, I mean, I remember when I was uh, a youngster, um, you know, for Euro 96, when England were playing Spain in the tournament, you know, the, the front pages of the tabloids were still recalling the Armada as the time when England had bested Spain. So I think it's one of these events which has managed to lodge itself in, into the popular memory. And, and really, they're not... Not too many other sort of iconic pre-modern events which you could put alongside that, maybe 1066. But you know, I'd certainly, I don't know if you'd agree, but I would say that Elizabeth and the Armada is far more remembered than uh, the British Civil Wars or the execution of Charles I, which are arguably uh, more influential or consequential. Absolutely, and the whole story of her and the uh, Mary Queen of Scots. And mm. yeah, absolutely. And uh, and also interesting for me was the kind of the interconnectedness between the different states of the time. You know what was going on in the Netherlands was and, and the Spain and France were all kind of interconnected in in one big conflict, if you like. Yeah, and I, I think one thing which you know I talk about a book and a lot is 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 the Habsburg monarchy and how, due to a series of very successful marriages, uh, Charles V finds himself as the heir to this far-flung empire, and even when he splits it in two between his son, Philip, and his brother, Ferdinand, Philip is somehow left with, with, with the Low Countries, as well as ruling Spain and, and, and Spain's international empire. And it, um, when you explain to someone that the Spanish used to rule, rule the, the Dutch Republic, you know, it does seem very counterintuitive, um, but you have to sort of talk about it in the context of, as you say, these great European power alliances, and particularly the Habsburgs, who are you know, one of these fascinating families in European history. You, you, you ask, why did Philip spend so much time and energy trying to control the Netherlands and send so many marges across to, to England? Um, I mean, you, you can partly put it down to his character, but, but also the, the historical background. Uh, he, he, he inherited these lands um, and, you know, he felt it was his, his duty to, to, to keep them. Mm. Yeah, and I think also if we look at it in the context of the Reformation, he felt it was his duty to make sure that they stayed Catholic and, and didn't become a breeding ground for you know, more Protestants. Um, so I think, yes, you're right, you've got this dual mixture between uh, dynasty and religion. And then for someone like Philip II, you know, yeah, he, he's not going to allow the Dutch to go on their merry way and become an independent Protestant state. So there were so many other things going on in Europe at the time. There was the scientific revolution, the great changes in uh, in, in military. Mm. Um, what other things going on at that time do you think were particularly important? Yeah, I think the military revolution is is you know really interesting, and um, certainly I'd, I'd probably date the military revolution as starting more towards the seventeenth century, but. 
you have people in, in the Netherlands like Morris of Nassau, who's, who's the son of William of Orange, who introduces more drill, um, sort of a rotating rank where you have the constant volley fire. Um, and he's able to defeat the sort of crack, crack Habsburg units um, for the first time in open battle in the early 17th century. And then over time, this develops into people like Gustavus Adolphus uh, in Sweden in the Thirty Years' War, and also in this country, Oliver Cromwell in the New Model Army. So you have this sort of gradual professionalization of warfare. It becomes more and more expensive, and then states and governments have to build up at the same time, and you have this kind of um, growing modern sort of bureaucratic nation-state um, coming together. So I think... The military revolution is a really big driver um, of, of political change in the continent. Yeah, so it's something I'll be going into in the in near future. Obviously, the Thirty Wars, uh, Thirty Years' War, was a big thing. Some of what was going on in the East at the same time, conflict between the uh, Ottomans and the Cossacks, I, th I think, is not very well known, but but mm. very interesting in its own right. Yeah, and I, I think it, it, it's great that you're 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 going to every corner of the continent because I certainly think talking about uh, things which should be studied more, the Ottoman Empire was a huge transcontinental um, powerhouse and and one which ruled a fairly big part of the European continent. And in terms of military technology, you know, at least in the 16th century, were, were extremely advanced and, and, and ahead of many European states. And of course, another important thing going on at that moment was the extension of European power beyond Europe and then across the globe, which has you know huge ramifications still to today. Could you say a few words about why you think that happened and uh, its importance? Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think what's what's interesting is is in my view, it really starts with Portugal, which is you know a relatively small kingdom with not as many natural resources as its larger and more powerful neighbours, but their kings invested a lot of money in, in exploration and voyages of discovery. Um, of course, they, they turned down the chance to finance Christopher Columbus's voyage. Um, so I think for, for a lot of nations, it was something which was uh, economic and just designed as a way to make money. And then over time, it shifts into something which brings power and prestige to a dynasty, um, but but really, it, in its early years, imperialism, in my opinion, was something which was done on a terrifically ad hoc basis by kind of extremely ambitious people who sort of were on the ground and and did what they thought would you know win them glory uh, in the moment, and then over time, this transmutes into these huge formal empires. But they had often beginnings of just you know handfuls of men who just wanted to make some money. Yeah, in particular, I think the story of the first Portuguese explorers is just an amazing story of, as you say, just a, a few individuals changing history. Mm. Yeah, and, and, you know, I think certainly if you look at the British imperial experiment, you know, it was certainly, as far as Elizabeth I was concerned, she just wanted to make sure it didn't cost her any money. And if people were going to go off and be privateers or raid Spanish shipping or, or you know, start up colonies, you know, she was happy for them to do it, um, as long as it didn't upset her rule or, or, or get the crown for any further debt. 
Great. I think just uh, I think the last question I have really is just kind of bringing, bringing us up to the modern time. Of course, um, we live in rather turbulent times politically throughout Europe, quite interesting times. Mm. Um, I, w- I wonder uh, if you have any thoughts about how kind of studying history can explain some of the current state of politics around the continent. Yeah, I think really studying history, you know, certainly if you look at things like uh, Russia's involvement in in Crimea uh, and and a lot of the disputes going on in Eastern Europe and the Balkans, I think an understanding of the long-term historical trends behind that is really crucial. Uh, And I think if we look at the history of this country, um, I think there's a lot of sort of misconceptions which have crept into people's idea of the history of Britain. I think, you know, World War II is something which is constantly referred to. Um, but people like to refer to it as a time when Britain stood alone against the rest of uh, the continent. And that's, you know, I think only telling part of the story. Britain had the whole Commonwealth behind it, as well as all the people who were, you know, resisting the rise of fascism in Europe. and who had no idea the war would end in 1945 and, and in some cases made huge personal sacrifices. So I think we always have to take a step back and, and, and not take the common wisdom at first hand and, and you know, critically analyse it for ourselves. So it's important to have a broad understanding of, of history of the, and see how individual events fit into the, the context rather than just looking at them in isolation. Yeah, no, I, I think that's a really good point. I think you... you you know, if you're studying the history of Britain or looking at this country's relationship with Europe, you can't just look at it from a British point of view. You have to step back and, you know, look at it in a, in a far wider sense. And then you get something which is approaching a more accurate picture. OK, excellent. OK, so I think that was the last question. So uh, so thank you very much, Jacob, for, for coming on to the show. Great. Thank you so much for having me. So, yeah, as I say, the book uh, History of Europe in Bite-Sized Chunks. Um, Yeah, all the best, and, uh, yeah, good luck with that. Cheers, thank you so much. Bye. Thank you, bye-bye. So I hope you enjoyed the interview. It's something a little bit different. Next time I'll be back to the normal, back to the narrative, talking about, as we discussed, the Spanish Armada. I'd love to hear from you, so feel free to get in touch on the Facebook page or the blog, www.historyup.net, on Twitter, at HistoryUpKB, KB for Key Battles, or, of course, email me, Carl, C-A-R-L, at historyurp.net. So until then, all the best and goodbye.